This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. All right, uh, this is Steve Silverman sitting in for Josh this week. Uh, we appreciate you joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. We've got a tremendous show this week uh, heading into Memorial Day. Uh, Sandy Montag joins us, the senior corporate vice president of IMG Sports. Uh, he represents John Madden and Bob Costas and Ari Fleischer, uh, Taylor Swift, all kinds of uh, high-level high uh, folks in the sports and, and entertainment industry. We talk about, we'll talk about sports and, and society and, and how all these things come together. Uh, we'll also talk to Kostya Kennedy, who's the author of Pete Rose, uh, An American Dilemma, uh, who is a contributing uh, editor for Sports Illustrated and has written about some of the most important issues of our time. And we'll get into a range of issues, not include, not only Pete Rose, uh, but Joe DiMaggio. He's the author of a book about that. We'll talk about uh, other issues, uh, Donald Sterling and LeBron James and uh, uh, the president's visit to the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, the other day. Uh, so welcome, my first guest, Sandy Montag. Thank you for uh, joining us. You're the senior corporate vice president of IMG Sports and Entertainment. Uh, everybody says you're one of the biggest agents uh, in the world, representing it's a litany of the, the biggest and the best. John Madden, Bob Costas, James Brown, Peyton Manning, Jim Nance, oy, the Mannings, Justin Timberlake, Taylor Swift, you, you got a and, and Ari Fleischer. We've got a whole range of people to talk about. Um, the show is Polyoptics, of course, and we could cover a lot of things. Uh, welcome to, uh, to Polyoptics. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Steve. Happy to uh, have to be part of it. You you have a pretty good voice for uh, radio yourself. Well, thank you, Sandy. You know, one day I'll join the the uh, the litany of the um, people that you represent up there with the the great ones. Uh, that would be. I like Jim, it. Jim Nance would be a pretty good one because he does the uh, you know he's got that incredible voice and he does the masters yeah. and he's got the voice of authority. Um, you're from Tenafly, New Jersey, the home of it's like what do they have in the water out there? Ross Levinson, Eric Allador, Jeff Jacobs, Robert Antanasio is just getting over some surgery. What is going on at Tenafly? that are producing all these great, um, you know, people in the, the sports and, and creative world. Well, the problem, the, the biggest problem in Tenafly was we all thought we were, you know, great athletes, <laughs> you know, but, but as it turns out, we were really good with the head fakes and good with the behind-the-back passes, and none of us amounted to anything. So we all, we all love sports, and we just wanted to get in the industry one way or the other, and it just uh, it just didn't happen on the court, but uh, it happened on a, a, lot, a lot of other areas. Well, it, it's amazing how uh, you got into, uh, you know, after you gave up the, the sports uh, playing sports uh you, the way in was pretty amazing you started out with john madden a few years ago tell us how you how you got going in the industry well i was at syracuse and wanted to be a broadcaster myself and it, it was pretty competitive up there uh and you know I, I quickly got into production and ended up at syracuse while i was there working close to 100 games as a researcher pa runner stats guy and met a lot of people and um uh, started working on the Madden Summerall group, and when I got out of school, someone said, hey, you know, Madden travels by train. Uh, he needs someone to travel with him. And I'm like, all right, where do you sign up for that? <laughs> so, uh, you know, my, my real first job out of school, and if John was here, he would he would say that he took me off the streets, but I started traveling with him on the train. Imagine go today going coast to coast on Amtrak, 72 hours. Not only that, with no cell phone. 
Oh, come on. So, you know, back in, in 1985, there were no cell phones. And, uh, you know, so what you ended up doing was talking, which people don't do today, no. playing a lot of cards and seeing our beautiful country. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I quickly from there, uh, one thing led to another, and I started doing some deals for John. And um, he was an IMG client at the time. And, you know, I just started really in into the world of representation and um I, I you know today there i'm on the the board of sports management for a couple of schools michigan and syracuse and there are over 500 schools where you can get a degree in sports management back in the 80s there were none so i, I had no idea you know you just fell into it back then and today for kids coming out today it, it's a lot harder you don't you don't hear of a lot of stories like that anymore um you know and we have a job opening we have hundreds of resumes right, that we right. get so it's uh, but, it's gotten yeah. to be incredibly uh competitive um well it's a huge business i saw a, 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 a stat not too long ago that it's a 400 billion dollar business the sports industry uh and what you all as agents do and putting the deals together it's you know, it's pretty extraordinary. What's the take us through a little bit of the nuts and bolts when you're doing a deal? How does that actually come together? Well, I mean, it's, it depends. You know, I oversee our clients' groups, so whether it's a coaching deal, a marketing deal, a broadcasting deal, you know, it's like any negotiation, really. There's there's a bid and an ask, and you know, if if there's a if someone's contract's coming up, you know, you you generally Mark McCormack when uh, he hired me in the 80s one of the first things he taught me on negotiating is always make the other side make the first offer hmm. and you know one of the reasons you let them show their cards a little bit also they may be offering more than than you thought you would get you know so you want to always play from a position of strength and knowledge and you know it's it's a negotiation and I've I've always believed though um, and I hate the word agent. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> okay. But uh, I consider myself a career guidance counselor. All right. Um, but, um, you know, I always believe that you should leave a little bit of money left on the table. There are some agents that will take every last dollar and then some. I don't believe that. I think, you know, the, the time it takes to do a deal is really not that long. But then you have the rest of the, you have the contract term to work with both parties on servicing it, on whatever might happen, and then the next deal. So I, I always believe that a, a good deal is really good for both parties. And I've been involved in plenty of deals where we've had all the leverage in the world. And even when John Madden went to Fox, when they launched Fox Sports in 1992, and Rupert Murdoch basically called and said, give me your number, I'll give you yes, a yes or no in five minutes, you have a lot of leverage there. But I think it's... Um, you know, it, it's a good deal is fair for both parties and, and not just for one. Well, it sounds like uh, given the, our audience uh, focus a lot on, on politics and what's happening behind the scenes, it's something maybe our friends in Washington uh, could learn a lot about, uh, you know, getting to uh, getting to yes with both sides, uh, getting something out of it. Um, you have uh, Peyton Manning, I always think, is one of and Eli, two of the great brands uh, in sports, um, you know, probably of all time. I know they always do well on the Sports Illustrated Fortunate uh, 50. They do very well on endorsements and uh, obviously on the field. Um, how, t- talk a little bit about the importance of brand uh, in terms of doing these deals. And, is it wor- and how much is it worth in generally when these guys are, are doing a deal? 
Well, I mean, I think it's if you're an advertiser today, and if you're going to pay someone to be the spokesperson for your product, I mean, you're going to want to align yourselves with people who are credible, who are winners, but also who are great people who aren't going to get in trouble. And, you know, in society today, it just seems that the paid sixes of the world uh, and, 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 and everything in the news is so salacious and so negative that when you find a family like the Mannings, and it really goes back to their parents. I mean, Archie and Olivia Manning are, you know, great people, and, and they're also great parents. And, and Archie was IMG's first team sport client, um, you know, over 40 years ago. Wow. And I just think what he has done as a father and as an, you know, a former athlete um, has really paved the way for his kids to to be, you know, the men that they are today. And, um, I, you know, I think that, that really your upbringing and, and you know, and how, and, and that's something, you know, that we try to try to teach and try to help with here with our clients. It's, it's, it's really thinking long-term, thinking about your brand, thinking about, you know, how, how you act, um, what you say, and it's all in, in the world we live in today with with social media and with cell phone cameras, and, you know, you, you can get in trouble in a moment's notice, and, and you just have to, it's different today, and you have to, there, once you turn, turn um, you know, the world, once you, once you give up your private life and you're a celebrity, you have to realize that unless you you know, you're in you're in your own house, and there's no phone on, and you're not talking anyone. You're you're really in public. Absolutely, I, it's funny you talk about the the Mannings. Um, the I watched the SEC special on Archie and the whole family. It really was extraordinary to see uh, the parenting. And you know, we forget how great a ball player Archie was. He happened to play with New Orleans, which wasn't a very good team. Uh, but that was, uh, I think, your point about parenting. Uh, it really matters. It makes the, probably the biggest impact. I think it was a Time story a couple of months ago talking about, you know, what's the ultimate, you know, most important, uh, I think it was based on a study for some guys at MIT or Harvard, what's the most important thing to, to making an athlete? And, and it's, you know, support at home and good parenting. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of folks don't have that, but it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a huge issue in our society. It, it is. And I think that, you know, there are a lot of great athletes and great, um, successful people in the world who may have come from a broken home or may have come from a single parent home or no parent home, you know, but it's still whatever basis you had at home growing up, you know, really, whether it, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether, whatever it might, you know, there have been tragedies where kids have lost parents and they've been raised by whomever whatever that is you know it really plays a big part in how kids grow up and and i really think that i mean i you know that that piece on on uh, the book of manning was you know even for someone like me who's known the mannings for 30 years i mean i cried yeah. uh, so it, it was just uh you know, and that's what that's what they're like. You know, I actually spoke with Peyton the other night, and when we were talking about his dad, and you know, it's that that's what you see is what you get. They're oh. they're just uh, they're special people. We uh, we need uh, we need more uh, like them. Tell me, uh, speaking of uh, good parenting, um, <laughs> a few years ago you got to know Ari Fleischer, uh, and then you went into business with Ari. Ari, of course, is the former White House press secretary who's done very well. 
uh, in the world of uh, sports and crisis management. Tell us how you met Ari, and I think your son was involved. Tell us how that all thing came together. Well, I, you know, um, yes, I'm a sports nut and all that, but but I'm also somewhat a closet political junkie. So I, I'd watch C-SPAN a lot. I don't watch it as much as I used to, but I used to watch it a lot. And when Ari was press secretary, I used to watch his daily briefings where, you know, and, and he always had a reference to sports. It may, not always, maybe a couple times a week. And he's a big Dolphins fan, Yankees fan. And, you know, he, he constantly talking about it. And you saw when the Yankees came down. Or this, I mean, he, he was throwing the ball with Jeter. And so he announced he was leaving, and 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 I, I don't know. I'm like, boy, that's. I wonder what he's going to do. So I asked my office to get me a number for the White House press office, and they found one. And I left them a message. I figured, yeah, I'll never hear back from this guy. You know, an hour later he calls me, and and you know I explained who I was, and he said, no, I know who you are. So you know why why are you calling me? And I said, well, I, you know I've been watching you on TV for a while, just interested in. I don't know what you're going to do post White House, but I, you know, I think we, I think there could be a consulting thing. I think there could be a number of things that you could be helpful for in the world of sports. And he said, why don't you come down um, to Washington? We'll meet. And so we did. And we started, um, you know, more, we started a deal more for consulting in the world of sports and with leaders and this and that. And around that time, there were were a bunch of negative news um, coming out. There was the NBA referee scandal. There was a number of things. And it just so happened that that week, on the front page of the New York Times, um, there was a negative story about sports every day. And, and I, I'm, I'm old school. I still today, although my daughter's going to college in the fall, but on the breakfast table, we have the New York Times in print sitting there. And I always, we always look at the front page. And yeah, so my son, who's uh, now a senior at, at Michigan, he said, Dad, do you realize there's a negative story every day this week about sports? I said, really? I said, that's kind of interesting. So I mentioned it to Ari that day, and I said, you know, what if we we have to start training some of these people better about, you know, about the the do's and the don'ts and then what, you know, what you can do better. And then, and, and then on, on the other hand, the crisis part of it, what do you do when, when you get in trouble? And, and we started talking about how if we morphed our company into a media training crisis management company, you know, that could really be a useful um, company, you know, in, in this world. And, you know, since then we've trained dozens of athletes and teams uh, already spoken at preseason and in training camp to pro teams. Um, we have a big business in college sports. And, and not just, you know, uh, besides the training, also when you do uh, have some crises, how you get out of it, how to handle that, how to avoid that. Um, and, and I think we've, we've really created a pretty good niche in that space. You know, since then, I, I think there's over a dozen companies now that do that. A lot of people coming out of the White House have formed um, those sorts of companies. And, you know, I've just found that, Ari, when you're the press secretary and you are um, dealing, forget about the crises in sport, when you're dealing with the president and and he was with President Bush on 9-11, if, you, if you're used to that level of fire, you know, you, you just, you, you really can handle anything yep. in crisis management. And, um, and and Ari doesn't really, he, he doesn't get bothered by anything. He's very even keeled, and, and we've been able to form a, 
a really good bond and a good company here in the world of sports and entertainment. Well, it's, it's true, and not, really nothing flusters you. As you know, Sandy, I came out of the White House and have been doing a lot of this sports-related stuff, uh, working yeah. on the Jonathan Martin stuff a few months ago. And, you know, you're absolutely right. that The skills you learn in Washington and in government and campaigns really are very transferable over to this world because more and more uh, these issues are front page, more and more uh, society issues are impacting sports and sports are impacting uh, society. Uh, and so people with that kind of training, I think, are, are, are able to make uh, an impact. Um, um, let's hear from Michael Sam talking about uh, his recent uh, coming out. Michael, are you a gay man? I am a gay man and I'm happy to be one. How does that feel to say those words to the world? It's a, it's a load off my chest. Uh, I told my teammates uh, this past August that I came out to my teammates and they took it great. Uh, they rallied around me, they supported me, and I couldn't ask for better teammates. What did that moment feel like to tell your teammates? It was, uh, I was, I was kind of scared, even though they already knew, but I was still scared of telling them and just to see their reaction was awesome. And uh, they supported me from day one. It, it, Sandy, um, so many folks are now, we have the, the gay community with, with Michael Sam, with Jason Collins. Um, when you have clients that are in those kind of situations, or you know, what's it like behind the scenes, and have you dealt with any of the most recent uh, situations that have arisen? Well, I, I, you know, to me, um, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean to say it's much to do about nothing, because in today's society, it is. But I remember, you know, we have hundreds of clients at IMG. We have clients that are heterosexual. We have gay clients. We have, so, so I remember, you know, we work with Robin Roberts, um, mm -hmm. representative for all her speaking. Wow. But I remember a client of mine, maybe ten years ago, say, "Hey, I want to sit down with you. I want to." You tell you, you know, I just want to talk about something personal, and we went to sit down, and he told me, "I just want to let you know, um, I'm gay." And you know, I didn't. I just kept, and I said, "Okay, so what?" You just kept going. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, what do you mean? You know, what do you think? I'm like, I don't think anything. You know, I. So I, I think, you know, it, it's more people wanted to make the same thing more of a sports issue, but it's it's you know, it's it's not. It was to me, it wasn't a sports issue. It, it really wasn't an issue. It, it's an issue that maybe people in the world of sports haven't dealt with, and in team sports in particular. But, you know, I, I was a little more, not concerned, but I was agitated that it got so much play. Um, and I think the media, to some extent, sensationalized what was going on there. And as we all know, this is not, you know, your sexual orientation in 2014 is not that big a deal, Which and it shouldn't be, but because of the world we live in and because of sports and because of ESPN with 26 different channels, it's going to create a lot of attention, and, and I understand that. It reminds me back in the, I'm dating myself here, late, late 60s, early 70s with the women's tennis, uh, Virginia Slims, uh, we've come a long way. Baby, I mean, it's so it's we've come a long way. Yeah, it's maybe, not, we, I mean, maybe not Billy such a big Jean deal. King, Billy Jean King was one of IMG's first clients. Oh my! That, you know, and we work with you know I worked closely with for years with Martina Navratilova, and so you know, for, for me, I it it doesn't it it didn't phase me that much. But what did was the amount of attention uh, that it drew. But but today, you know, it, it's 
the media gets a hold of an issue, and it won't stop until they're ready to, to make it stop. Well, that's uh, now. Of course, he's got to he's got to play, and he's got to you know. It's tough as a late round pick. He's got to you know make the team and all. So that'll be the next uh, the next issue. Um, tell me, um, I want to hear a little bit from uh, another uh, very prominent, one of the great uh, sportscasters around, Bob Costas. In the aftermath of the nearly unfathomable events in Kansas City, that most mindless of sports cliches was heard yet again. Something like this really puts it all in perspective. Well, if so, that sort of perspective has a very short shelf life, since we will inevitably hear about the perspective we have supposedly again regained the next time ugly reality intrudes upon our games. Please. Those who need tragedies to continually recalibrate their sense of proportion about sports would seem to have little hope of ever truly achieving perspective. Um, Bob Costas is truly one of the greats of the last uh, uh, 20, 30 years. He has, you know, over the last few years, you know, taken some, I wouldn't call them political stands, but he's, he's gotten, you know, made statements on, on societal issues at the Olympics and just the clips we just heard on, on gun control. Um, you know, when you talk to Bob, is it something he... Uh, does he think a lot about it before he goes ahead and does it? Uh, is he cognizant that it, maybe not everybody agrees with him? How does that sort of work play out? Uh, I don't think he puts a lot of thought. I mean, obviously at the Olympics, he puts a lot of thought into the issues affecting the world and affecting Sochi and Russia. You know, they, he put a lot of thought into that on, on, on some of the other issues which have created... Uh, some attention. He really does. He's reacting to a question from uh, someone who, who's interviewing him. You know, I think Bob is one of the smartest people that I know. He's one of the most opinionated people I know, and, and he is not bashful about sharing his opinion. I think because, for the most part, he is in the world of sports. It becomes, you know, somewhat of a shocker to a lot of people. I also think, though, he used to host a show on HBO called uh, Casas Now, and he's been on Real Sports. And yes. I think he really misses the outlet where he's able to be a journalist and he's able um, to talk about societal issues today. And in the world of sports, when you're hosting Sunday Night Football on NBC, when you're hosting the Olympics, when you're hosting, you know, you have the Preakness he just did and the Belmont coming up, talking about a triple crown, you're not able to, if, if there are issues that are important to you, you're not able to have a forum to do that. And that's something that Bob and I have talked about. He's also a contributor to NBC News, and he gets to uh, do some of the things there. But I think the long-form town hall format is something, even a radio show like this, and he used to have a radio show back in the 80s called Costas Coast to Coast on Sunday nights, one of the first real sports wrap-up Sunday night shows. And I think he misses the long form. Uh, television and sports today have become very short form. And even in his role, bringing Sunday night football on the air, or even at, at halftime, he gets a couple of minutes. And um, sometimes, you know, for, for smart people, that's not, not enough. Not enough. My friend Ross Greenberg uh, was doing the town halls with him for a while. I don't know if they're still on the air. Or are they are they gone now? Well, they're not. They're they're on hiatus for yeah. now because uh, you know they're for a number of different reasons. But you know, just the other day, you know, Bob and I were talking about looking down the road. You know, where where can we do some things like this? Because I, you know, you're, you're right, Steve. He he misses. Um, he misses that part uh, of his life where where he can 
you know, get into some issues and talk about them. Well, his voice would make, um, not his literal voice, his figure would make such a difference these days with all the issues that we're talking about um, today, Sandy. Um, exactly. I've got to ask you, you were at the White House Correspondents' Dinner a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, you know, highlights, any, uh, tell us what your perspective of was it. Well, my wife, my wife Nancy's not a, a sports fan, believe it or not. But she's a huge tennis fan. Uh-huh. So there's only two things that she asks of me uh, every year. She likes going to the U.S. Open when it comes to New York, and she likes going to the White House correspondent <laughs> dinner. So we've been fortunate to go three or four times, and you know, it, it's just one of those that you know there's 26. 2,800 people uh, at the Hilton. You know it's packed. You know you really, once you sit down, you can't get... But you're, you're at tables where you look around and everyone, you know everyone. Now, you don't know them, but you just, you know, they're all familiar to you, whether in the world of politics, entertainment, sports, what have you. And we've actually made, you know, several years ago, I sat, literally sat next to um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen. And he, he was the, you know, he was the chairman at the time. And we, I wanted to talk about the government, and he wanted to talk about Tiger Woods, and you know, a humongous sport. And since that dinner, we've actually become good friends, and and we're doing some things in the leadership space together. But um, you know, and then we saw him the year after that, which, as we all know, was the night before uh, the Bin Laden raid. So, you know, it, it's a room that you're sitting there, you're not quite sure what it is. But it's, it's, you know, and, and I was reading the Washington Post when I was down there, and they used the word, the term nerd prom a lot. And, and you know, I, I guess, I mean, but it's, it's still one of those nerd proms that, that everyone wants to go to, and it's a, apparently a very tough, tough ticket. I, I think it is. I have to ask you before we leave, uh, I know you do a ton of charity work. Uh, a lot of it's focused on, on kids and the community. Um, what's, how, did, how do you get involved, and what, what are you caring most about these days, Sandy? Well, I think one of the things you, you do when you get in positions that we're in where, you know, people are calling you and people look up to you and, and, and you have access, you just have, you have a chance to give back. And whether it's to schools, whether it's to children, whether it's to people who are not as fortunate, you know, we spend most of our time on, on children's charities. I'm on the board of Tom Coughlin's charity, the J Fund. Um, Tom's a coach of the Giants, and that charity supports families of kids with cancer. Um, you know, I'm on the board of Madden Charities, John Madden's Charities, which does similar things for underprivileged kids. And I, I just, you know, I believe that uh, children and students, you know, have such a bright future ahead of them. And for those of us who are in position or fortunate enough to, you know, have succeeded at some point along the way, I think it's important to give back. And, and that's kind of what we do and what we also um, work with our clients to do. Well, Sandy Montag, uh, thank you so much for spending time. There, there's so much more we could cover. I have about 25 more questions. We're going to have to wait till the, the next time or the time after that, but it's a pleasure to talk to you. Appreciate you have, coming on. And, you know, society and sports coming all together in politics, uh, you're right at the forefront, so we really appreciate the time. What a career you're having. I appreciate that, Steve. Thanks for having me on, and uh, good luck with everything you're doing. Thanks, and we'll talk real soon. 
This is the only channel that takes you inside Washington, D.C. My message is simple. It's just not realistic. We're serious about growing our economy. Our economy. It's clear the president's policy. Is growing again. Not helping the economy. The economy. Bureaucracy. Monetary policy. Jobs. We'll be able to reduce our deficit. Fighting over power. It's starting to make a lot more sense. This is POTUS. The Press Pool with Julie Mason. Political coverage through the eyes of beat reporters, columnists, bloggers, and some of the biggest names in Washington politics. So pleased to have with us now, former President of the United States and Nobel Peace Prize winner, Jimmy Carter. You're listening to Women in Congress with Congressman Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, and Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat of New York. Great to be hosting leader Nancy Pelosi in this edition of SiriusXM's Leading Ladies in honor of Women's History Month. Thank you for being here. For Women's yeah, History Month. Yeah. Ah, you're a ladies. The Fast Pool with Julie Mason. Weekdays starting at 3 p.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM 124. We are back with uh, Kostya Kennedy, who is a contributing editor to Sports Illustrated. He's, uh, he's been with Sports Illustrated for a long time, and he's just written this wonderful book, Pete Rhodes, An American Dilemma. And a, and a good friend of mine, Kostya, thank you for joining us uh, to talk about Pete Rose and all kinds of other things in the world of sports and society. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Y- you've been on the road a lot. I mean, this book came out in, I guess, February. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading a New York Times uh, op-ed that you wrote about the, the situation. And uh, you've been on the road and you've been out. And now it's a bestseller. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a, been a really fun ride. And people seem to really gravitate to this topic and, and some of the issues that get touched upon in the book, so it's been great. What is it about Pete Rose that uh, 25 years or so after the the banishment, which we'll talk about, that he is still kind of very much in the public's mindset? Well, first of all, he's still alive and still out there, so he shows up here and there. He's 73 now. I think also what happened with him is, is in some ways, it's the most dramatic athlete fall of all time. he, He played the game with such integrity and became the all-time hit leader, but really played with a symbolic level of intensity, attention to the game, all these... Charlie Hustle. Charlie Hustle himself, you got it, and and all these wonderful attributes. And then to be banished from the game and to commit a sin by betting on the game, which cut right to the very integrity of the game, which is what he played by, really is, is just an, this incredible dichotomy and, and it gives people a lot to think about and talk about and I think to this day when I'm asked to talk about anything really in sports and, and you bring up any issue in sports, I think that that question elicits the most response and the most sustained discussion of any, whether or not Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame, given what he achieved and what he did. What's amazing, you know, you go back and look at the clips of him taking out Ray Fossey and fighting with right. Bud Harrelson, and, and you, as you said, he, and he was the, he's the career hit leader by so many, um, and he did not bet on the game while he was playing. He didn't bet. Is that is that correct? Well, you know I, I think not? I did show in the book that he did bet uh, as a player as well. On his own team? or on not, not that I'm aware of on his own team, but on other teams in baseball. And not with the intensity. When he was managing, he bet basically every night on his own team and other teams. As a player, it was more of an occasional thing, but he did bet on the game as a player. You have a fascinating section towards the end of the book where uh, people he knew, friends of his, would watch on television and see him in the dugout, and they could tell that he would be agitated about certain things, 
and it wouldn't necessarily be about right. it'd be about the game, but it'd be a certain high, high, up or down based on probably what he was betting on. Yeah, we can never know for sure because Peacock really involved in a lot of things. <laughs> He's an emotional kind of guy. Right. But there were players who definitely said, particularly in hindsight, after it all came out, because when it was going on, a lot of players didn't had no idea. They knew he was hanging out with kind of the wrong types of people to be hanging out with, but they didn't really know he was betting the way he was. That in retrospect, some of his reaction to games, not really his own game, but to other games on a TV, seemed way disproportionate to what was actually at stake and attributed that to the fact that he had he had money on it. Can you explain, Kostya, um, the baseball has its own rules. The mm-hmm. NBA has its own rules, right. as we just learned with Donald Sterling. What... Is that from Congress, or how does that actually work? How do they have their own rules? Uh, I mean, it, well, the, that's a big question with lots of different rules. So some rules about the finances and, and of course, the antitrust exemption and all that, those are those have government intervention. But but the gambling is, is a baseball rule that stems from 1919. When baseball first was beginning in the late 1800s, there were people along the sides who would take bets during the game uh, as the score changed, kind of like if you go to highlight or something like that. <laughs> that got weeded out by the time of the first World Series in 1903, and b- betting became illegal. But it was after the 1919 the Black scandal, Sox the scandal. Black Sox scandal, where Joe Jackson and and other players were banished from the game for attempting to throw the uh, World Series successfully throwing the yes. World Series, attempting to successfully <laughs> exactly that they really cracked down. There have been some some incidents of gambling between then and now, but by now and as it has been for many years, on every clubhouse rule is 21d is posted and it says that if you bet on baseball in any way shape or form you'll be banished from the game now pete was never a really big reader but (laughs) i know he uh he read that uh and it's clear and and the reason is it's amazing steve when i was working on this book how often 1919 came up i mean that's almost 100 years ago now right but people saw what it could do to the fabric of a game if people question in any way whether the game is on a level and that's why for all the laxness there's been on issues such as steroids in previous years and other things gambling is the third rail in the game what do you think uh, after studying this for so long did he do it for the money for the thrill did he have some kind of i don't know you know if the word addiction or what what what, what makes someone really put their clearly he put his career at risk Oh, no question. Why? He he clearly has some kind of an addiction or a compulsion or uh, I spoke to various uh, doctors and people who who treat gambling addicts about this. Uh, He he continues to gamble today. He doesn't bet on baseball as far as I can tell, but he will still bet a lot. And he it's been a part of his life always since he was a kid. He used to go to track with his dad. They, They would always bet. So that was part of it. And I think that he in some ways... He was uh, untouchable. He was Pete Rose. He was un- the hit king, the manager in Cincinnati, a franchise he'd come back to kind of resurrect in this wonderful baseball town, and he felt he could do whatever he wanted to do. And that explains not only what he was doing, but also his defiance upon being caught and his reluctance to admit anything, his sort of scornfulness, you know, screw you, I'm Pete Rose, I can do what I want. And that was a big part of, of his downfall. It, let's hear from Bart Giamatti. The banishment for life of Pete Rose from baseball is the sad end of a sorry episode. One of the game's greatest players has engaged in a variety of acts which have stained the game. 
and he must now live with the consequences of those acts. And that was it. It's a short statement. It's uh, Bart Giamatti, mm-hmm. the commissioner of baseball. Uh, you know, the, the death the death penalty. He wasn't. He was banned from baseball, uh, but he right. could have. Uh, with Faye Vincent as his maybe deputy. Sadly, Bart Giamatti died very shortly there. About eight days after, right? Uh, you know, tragic. Uh, but here we are, twenty five years later. In reading your book, I think it seems like Rose thought, you know, he would be out of baseball just for a little while, a short time. He was badly misinformed. He made a really bad miscalculation. Now, it certainly did not help his cause that Giamatti passed away eight days later and Jamadi was extremely overweight, smoked five packs a day. He was he was in health trouble regardless of the situation. But many people close to him felt that the Pete Rose investigation, which was grueling for six months with media attention and, and Jamadi was getting death threats, that that may have contributed to his, his fatal heart attack. There, there's no chance that Pete would have thought that 25 later, years later he'd be sitting on the outside looking in. And I think w- another reason why the Pete Rose situation feels so topical and relevant now is think about what's happened in the game of baseball since then. So many things that we could talk about, but in specific, the whole steroid era that came, Pete was too old for that. He didn't never got involved. Not, not to say he wouldn't have, but he didn't right. get involved in steroids. Right. And the people did, and they they didn't gamble, so they didn't commit that cardinal sin, but they did in some way stain the game, as, as to use Jamadi's language. They did in some way jeopardize the integrity of the game. And these men, guys like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, are getting a place on the Hall of Fame ballot. They're not getting into the Hall of Fame, but they're getting there, and that has put, even though in some ways it's apples and oranges, in other ways there is overlap, and people see this, and there's no question it has moved the, the Pete Rose debate back to the forefront and given it new perspective. And ultimately, Kostya, I don't, you don't per se come down on one side or the other. You, mm-hmm. But, but your, your view is he, he should be on the ballot, or do you come my back? View, my view in the, the op-ed that you spoke yeah. about that I wrote for the time, Pete deserves a chance to be on the ballot. He's the only player who has ever been specifically denied a place on the ballot. When Barchimani banished him, Pete was completely eligible for the Hall of Fame, just as Joe Jackson had been eligible for 50 years and continued to be, until two years later when the Hall of Fame committee passed a rule forbidding people who were banned from the game for being banned from the Hall of Fame. They did that specifically to keep Pete Rose out, and he's the only player who's ever been denied a chance. And that's what I think is the travesty. I I think that maybe Pete wouldn't have gotten in. Maybe he doesn't deserve to get in. I'm certainly not saying he does or he doesn't. But baseball writers, there are now about 500 of them, have had a chance to vote on literally every single player in baseball and history. Lots of bad Pete. people are in the. We know there's lots right. of kind of gruesome, racist and sexist, or you know, kind of in the Hall of Fame. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, again, when it's not a personality contest, right. and it's not whether whether we like Pete or not is irrelevant. But I do understand. I respect the voter who would say, "Look, because of what Pete did, I, Joe Smith voter." will not vote for Pete right. because of that. I respect that opinion. He did something really serious to the game. But I just think it's just not right. We just don't do that in this country, really. Right. You know, This is a fundamentally democratic process, like an election or like something else, where there's 500 voters. And more, by and large, if you were on a baseball show, you could always get some argument about this guy should be in, yes. this guy shouldn't be. Yeah. But by and large, they get it right. I right. mean, really, they do. And And to just say... You guys are not grown up enough to vote for this one guy because baseball was so afraid of him getting in. 
I think that was really a mistake. Well, and it, it, you're right. It seems to me, and and the the chance at redemption. Mm-hmm. You know, we give people a chance to come back from all kinds of things in society, and if his biggest sin uh, is is gambling on the game while playing or while manager, you know, he. I agree with you. I got to tell you, it seems like he should, people should have a chance to vote on him. They should just have a chance to vote on him. I mean, it's clear that his sin, in the, in the larger scope of of human sins, spousal abuse we've had, uh, all yeah. kinds of violent things. It's nothing like that. Right, However, like in that. the in the category of baseball, and just remember, you know, you can have a guy who's not a great citizen be on your team, and fans will still come out and pay for your product. But if they think somehow that the guy's betting on the game or it might not be on the level, you're jeopardizing that product. So I do understand why there is a harsher standard in baseball for gambling than anything else, and that part to me makes sense, even if it's not quite the sin that it is. Uh, right. that other sins are in a wider perspective. Well, we're going to, uh, I, I, we could talk about this for hours. Uh, we're going right. to, uh, we'll move on. Uh, you, you're the author of another, but, but uh, you know, good stuff on the book. And uh, as this thing plays out, maybe we'll have you back. Uh, oh, I'm sure we'll no doubt see you all over the place. Um, you wrote a, a wonderful best-selling book on, on Joe DiMaggio. Um, just for a moment, let me, let me just hear a little bit from Joe DiMaggio himself. Let me say that, Tommy, when you have five or six potential Hall of Famers on your team, and they eventually get to the Hall of Fame, that's when you win pennants and championships. And the only thing you'd have to be concerned about is getting the ball players to bet on time. <laughs> well, there's Joe D. He lived in a different era. Yep. Clearly one of the greats of all time. Clearly a Hall of Famer. Was he, uh, what was, you know, when you researched from him, was he, uh, you know, what Good guy. Yeah, well, my, my book was my book was uh, it's called Fifty Six, and it's about streak. about his streak in nineteen forty one, and it's also about America in nineteen forty one, which oh. is partly what appealed to me about it. That was the moment where we saw Joe DiMaggio turn from being a baseball star to being the guy uh, who had to- songs about him on the radio to Dolphin becoming this culture. Joe DiMaggio, exactly. That's, I only sing once today, but uh. well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> and that that song which came out, it was about the streak. It was in nineteen forty one. And it was a real song by Les Brown, and it was a chart topper. It wasn't the Super Bowl shuffle by the Chicago Bears, <laughs> right? Uh, and and he Pedro really and Perry and uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so, but what happened that summer is that DiMaggio transformed the country in a way that we have not seen an event or a figure transform the country. This was they called it even then the last innocent summer before the war of 1941, and kids were getting their draft numbers, and and so it was, it was a very powerful trenchant time in this country, and that was part of the big appeal. Joe, I think, to answer your question about likability or not, he was, this was long before Marilyn, and that's when things got a little hairier, I think, with him. One of the, my, my interpretations of Joe is that he was always a loop, but he was not very well educated. His parents were both illiterate. They were from Italy, and they were illiterate in Italian and in English. Mm. Joe didn't even go to high school, let alone not graduate. And he came to New York and was all of a sudden supposed to be Joe DiMaggio and give funny quotes and hold court at Toots Shores. And Pete, uh, sorry, Pete, Joe did not want to seem rubbish or unintelligent in any way. And that contributed, I think, to some of his aloofness. He was really well liked and respected on, on the team. And he was, as often happened in sports, Steve, if you can play the way he can play, and not only play that way, but give the effort. That's one thing that Joe DiMaggio and Pete Rose have very much in common. 
give the effort that Joe DiMaggio gave every day, that's part of what made him such a transformative figure. You, you talked about 1941. Now, he went into the war, right? He didn't go until 43, and he 42. didn't see combat. He didn't? No. But, you know, we have Memorial Day coming up on Monday, and, uh, you know, obviously people thinking about uh, veterans and people who have so mm-hmm. bravely, you know, served our country. You, know, you think about DiMaggio. Uh, I know Hank Greenberg served, Ted Williams served. Yeah. And you look back at these extraordinary men, uh, and, and, and I'm sure women, but these guys who had great baseball careers, right. but they were gone for three, four, five years of those. And it, it's pretty amazing to serve the country, which wouldn't Absolutely. happen today, I'm pretty sure. No, I mean, we, we don't have that draft, obviously, today, so, so it wouldn't. Of course, Pat Tillman is the one, Tillman. one wonderful example of somebody. Tragically, it ended. But, yes. uh, you, you know, Joe was important. All those players you mentioned went to war, and as did many others. Joe was an Italian-American, and that can't be overstated. What he meant, at that time, it was difficult to be an Italian-American in this country because of old prejudices. Media reports, they would call him the wallop and wop, you know, and, wow. and they articles even in places like Time Magazine and all that would use kind of slanderous terms to Italian, partly because Mussolini's on the other side of the war and wow. and it's not an easy time and for italian americans in this country and i spoke to guys like gay Talese, mario cuomo um a lot of italians dimaggio was a real rallying point for them because it was difficult to be italian and also you know you might have a brother or an uncle or somebody who's actually fighting the war in italy what you know it's, it's a confusing difficult time from the other side from the other side yeah. and so dimaggio was this unifying figure and really, really had a huge, huge part in, in legitimizing, to ignorant eyes, uh, the Italian-American experience. Well, yet, yet another example of how, you know, we see sports uh, and politics and society coming together mm-hmm. kind of almost uh, mm-hmm. every day. Um, the, the president um, is in, I think as we speak, uh, is in Cooperstown, uh, New York, um, honoring the Hall of Fame and being at the Hall of Fame. Um, I, I'm not sure what he's seeing, but uh, what do you think the what, what do you think he'll the biggest thing he'll take out of it? Well, I'll tell you, it's great that he's up there today. Just a quick story: I, I'm uh, I'm doing next week uh, an event at a museum in Philadelphia with Jeff Idelson, who is the uh, president of the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we were supposed to speak yesterday. And he called five minutes before and, and canceled our talk because, uh, why? Oh, well, the president's coming tomorrow. I said, well, okay. <laughs> a likely excuse. Right. So you don't get Kennedy, you get Obama. Um, <laughs> so uh, any, anyway, uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful place to be for anybody who hasn't been to Cooperstown. Uh, induction weekend when the, the new Hall of Famers go in, very exciting but also very crowded and kind of bizarre-ish with people hawking this and that. To go up a time like this, um, when when it, the weather's pretty good, but there's not huge crowds, and and be in those hallways, I'm sure that it's a wonderful experience for him. I mean, it, it's it's such a part. Baseball is still, still to me, the national pastime without question, and that's partly because of the history and partly because of the overlap with uh, political events, with huge social events. It's really right at the heart of, of so many American things, and I, I imagine that it's a—it's no accident that he chose to go there, right? It's not. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's still partly, Americana, it's, right? It is, and it's partly a, a, a move of pleasure to to go to America. So, uh, to so many times, thing. baseball and sports has been a, a, na- a national salve. I guess everybody remembers after 9/11 and the Mike, mm-hmm. Mike Piazza hitting the big home run for the Mets or the Yankee uh, Diamondback series, right? Um, 
uh, let's talk. Uh, so he's at the Hall of Fame. Um, I want to just transition some really st- some big issues, you know, kind of currently going on. We saw this Donald Sterling situation mm-hmm. with the N- NBA. Adam Silver's on the cover of of the magazine right. this week. Yep. Boy, what a big moment for him. It's his first big moment, and he really, <laughs> he really takes it on. Um, how do you think that all played out? Well, I think it was quite dramatic what he did, uh, although I think he really had no choice but to to basically what he did is, not legally, but in, in spirit, prosecute Sterling as, as severely as he could under the NBA Constitution. And that's what he needed to do for his players, uh, who were talking about boycotting to his sponsors, some of whom had pulled out. So to give the maximum fine and to banish him for life was in his powers and to set the wheels going that he will be removed from the team. I think he really handled it very forcefully. It was interesting to me the way he spoke so personally about how the comments bothered him being Adam Silver. But I, I do think through all this that there we've seen a little bit of groundswell of some unease of somebody being, nobody that I have known, and certainly not me, and I'm sure not you, would ever condone what Don, Stol- Don Sterling was saying or doing, but that a league can, can banish somebody on the basis of speech does make some people a little uneasy, and I get it, you know, and there are... Speech in a private setting. Speech in a private setting... To me, I mean, I understand that, but it did become public. Yep. The, the pu- public-private issue... Not so big. Not, not so big to me, but it, it, it's not conduct. And people say, well, he did display discriminatory conduct in the way he ran his housing unit. There's no question that he is he is, is racist. That, that's not a question. But he's being banned specifically for some, some things he said. Imagine if Don Sterling had, or somebody else had just said, I hate American cars. I'm not going to buy American cars. I only that my foreign cars are better, and so the sponsors started pulling out. Uh, you know, the Detroit Pistons said we're going on strike. Whatever <laughs> it was, well, nobody would be comfortable for somebody being punished for that, right? We are comfortable, and I admit that I'm comfortable. That Don yeah. Sterling is getting everything that he has coming to him. I, I have a very difficult time uh, seeing it any other way, but it, it is a touchstone moment in that what somebody said is affecting him and I, I'm sure that if you were a civil rights lawyer you would be you would take this on you would take this on and there's no question I think it's gonna it is gonna be fascinating I mean clearly he's poised for a, a fight he's saying he's not gonna pay the fine he's not gonna sell mm-hmm. the team um, what happens what's the what do you think happens in it's September October November the season is about to start um, are players gonna play he might they, he might still own the team he might still own, own the team. It, it's I can't. I understand the players have been putting pressure on the league and LeBron right at the forefront. Get this done. We expect this to move swiftly. I think in reality, it, it's a big thing. It's it's a it, hundreds of millions of dollars are at stake. Uh, you're removing somebody from the ownership group, which is practically unheard of. So it's going. They they have steeled themselves for a legal ba- battle. I think that Adam Silver, who's obviously a superb lawyer, w- was very careful about what he said and how he said it. But if if I'm the players and I see that this progress is being made genuinely, I don't see how you could could penalize the league or boycott in that situation. If they feel that, oh, they're not really 
going after like this. Service or whatever, yeah, yeah, then then I totally get it. But but you know, there's a legal process in this country, and thank God there is, and it might take some time to unfold. You uh, you Costa, you mentioned uh, LeBron, who clearly uh, took a very outspoken uh, role. Uh, on this societal uh, kind of issue, right. you know, you think back to Michael Jordan. You know, either the best or the second best. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we could have an argument about that right, of all exactly. time. Um, who who never got involved? You know, he said Republicans. You know, Democrats, everybody buys sneakers, something right, like that. Exactly. And so he never stepped into anything like this. He probably had something in common with uh, with the P. Rose. No, is he was did he gamble? Was he a gambler? P- uh, Michael, Michael was. Game, I mean, he, in, big card cards. player. Yeah, cards. exactly. Not in the game. Not in right, the game. right, right. Um, but. Um, why does LeBron and these guys feel more comfortable now, or what's the? How's that work? Well, I don't think that everybody does, but LeBron is extremely secure in who he is. He's been a star right from the from high school, of course, and I think part of it is personality. He he's aware that his words have power and that people will listen to them, and he's not afraid. Look, he he has made so much money. And will continue to make so much money that it's almost he he can say what he feels and what he wants to say and not really have to worry about a huge comeuppance. I mean, if, of course, if he went completely off the rails, but to take an opinion, it's an easier time to do that. I think that that is true. That there are more voices out there, and that's changed since Jordan's time. But I really think it's partly just the personality of the two guys. Kostya, we're uh, we, we're gonna wrap up. I just have to get your uh, quick opinion uh, on this Northwestern football players and mm-hmm. the union movement. What's the latest <clears throat> on that, and uh, where do we think that might land? Well, so they, they just quick background. They were declared employees um, by a, a regional board of the NLRB, and that's now being reviewed at Northwestern's request by the national board. Where exactly that sits, it, they're just in the process of doing it. They could give a ruling within a couple of weeks, or it could still be months. And if if it would happen, it it, it had the the potential to just transform college sports as we know it. And exactly what it would be, that's for a whole other segment. I mean, there's so many different possibilities of what could happen or what should happen. It but does feel like the ground p- is shifting. Oh, the ground no is shifting. Which way it goes, <clears throat> the ground it's- is shifting. And there was a, a, a suit. For, for proceeds from likenesses by Ed O'Bannon of UCLA yep. it, it was from 2009 that's just now getting to the courts and a few other things. We're at a seminal moment in the NCAA and they need to, hopefully this will all, they'll get it right. There clearly need to be changes, but what those changes are needs to get sorted out. Well, Kostya Kennedy, uh, author of Pete Rose, An American Dilemma, um, thank you so much. You've got opinions uh, and, and facts and thoughts on, on a range of issues on athletes and sports and the uh, society and politics. So thank you very much for being here. We'll have you back at some point because we've got a lot more to talk about. So thank you very much for being here. Terrific show. Love being on with you, Steve. Thanks, Kasi. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS.